Welcome to the Market Urbanism Podcast. I'm your host, Nolan Gray, a writer for Market Urbanism and a graduate student in urban planning. My guest today is Anthony Ling, uh, the founder of Caos Planejado, the Brazilian website uh, on cities and urban planning. He also founded Bora, a transportation technology startup, and is currently an MBA candidate at Stanford University. He graduated architecture and urban planning at Universidade Federal do Rio Grande do Sul and worked with Isa Weinfeld early in his career. Anthony, thanks for joining the Market Urbanism Podcast. Thank you, Noah. So I, I want to go ahead and, and start by your website, uh, Caos Planejado. The literal translation is, is uh, Planned Chaos. Um, what do you mean by that in the context of cities and urbanization? Sure. Um, so plan, this uh, planned chaos uh, started by, by realizing we have um, different, different interpretations uh, of what is planned and what is chaos, uh, right? When, when we talk about cities in general and, and Brazilian cities uh, specifically, um, people, people usually say they are chaotic. Uh, they, they, people have the, the ingrained image of cities as being chaotic and um, not having any kind of of urban planning. Um, they, 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 they think the problems of the city problems of cities arise when when there is lack of planning in general. Um, and at the same time, um, I understand that. Brazilian cities and, and most cities in in, in the world uh, do have uh, many plans, many regulations uh, that determine or or should determine uh, land use and building forms and, and etc. Um, and and in the other hand, we also have different interpretations of the word chaos. When we use chaotic in a uh, casual um, matter, we think of something that is disorganized. But when we think of chaos in a more, let's say, academic or, or technical point of view, um, we're talking about um, sensitivity to, to initial conditions of, of a system. So um, there, there, is, there is a kind of pattern that is identified in, in chaotic systems uh, that that can lead to to order, right? Um, that that is different from something that is is disorganized. So it's it's kind of the um, planned chaos is kind of a game between these these kind of different interpretations of of what is a city, um, how cities evolve, uh, are cities planned or not, are cities organized or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you see something pretty similar in the states where people might look at uh, strip mall development uh, or uh, suburban uh, housing subdivisions, and the immediate thought is that this is uh, the result of of a lack of planning. Uh, but uh, at least in the U.S., in many cases, this is the result of of, of a specific plan. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, one of the things that attracts me to this idea of planned chaos too is is it goes back to something that um, I think is built into this sort of new approach to urbanization. Uh, Jane Jacobs talked about um, the problem of disorganized complexity, right? So at the very end of Death and Life, she talks about 
uh, these problems where there are a lot of actors, each with their own sort of plans and motivations. Um, it's a it's a neat approach to um, yes to urbanization. I, I, you mentioned Brazilian cities too. I'd like to talk about that. So I think I think maybe the sort of uh, superficial impression someone might have about a Brazilian city is they would think it's chaotic. Uh, uh, on your website, though, you, you actually talk a lot about how cities like Sao Paulo and other Brazilian cities are, are doing some things right. Uh, you talk a lot about public space. Uh, what's going on with urbanization in Brazil? Um, h- how is urbanization governed in Brazil maybe unique from, from other countries? Yeah, of course. Um, I, think, I think it would be interesting to give kind of a historic background of, of planning in Brazilian cities. Sure, sure. So well, we had, uh, until, let's say, uh, the mid-20th mid century, um, planning that, that in some ways resembled uh, old towns, right? Uh, European cities, uh, historic downtowns uh, in the U.S., uh, m- mainly, I think, in the, in the East Coast, right? So um, we had, uh, and we still have, uh, historic city centers that have um, narrower streets, uh, no setbacks between, build, uh, between buildings, um, lots of mixed use, um, buildings with different heights, different forms, different styles, uh, lots of people walking the streets, uh, street vendors. We have lots of access to to public transportation because we have walkability and, and density. And this pattern basically evolved um, until, let's say, 19, 1950s. Um, but by then, um, there was a kind of, kind of a public reaction to, to cities and urbanization, I, I think worldwide. And uh, we saw the, the kind of the the, not the birth, but the development of, of modernism and, and modernist uh, architecture and, and urban planning in the world, and, and a, lo- a lot of it in, in Brazil. So uh, in 1957, we had the inauguration of Brasilia, uh, you know, today the, 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 the nation's capital, which kind of embodied all of these modernist concepts of, of total urban planning, uh, right? So, so Brasilia has uh, lots of open spaces. Uh, it, it has the the residential blocks that uh, Le Corbusier designed and and idealized. It has uh, extreme zoning in the sense that we have the hotel zone, the entertainment zone, the the government zone, the residential zone, the the bar zone. So um, it's it's kind of the the extreme end of, of planning. And in, in the, the following years, we had a, a military dictatorship in Brazil um, from, from 1964 to early, early, uh, the end of the 80s. So uh, during this period, we had major infrastructure works uh, in the country uh, kind of moving forward with this modernist vision of, of the private automobile and uh, building massive urban highways and massive tunnels and, and bridges and cutting through um, 
this historic uh, urban fabric. Um, so, so this changed a lot of the uh, of the, the, those old characteristics of, of historic downtowns we saw. Um, we also had lots of zoning, so um, zoning was was incorporated in, in the 60s and 70s in, in most uh, large Brazilian cities, uh, dividing in, into commercial, residential, and industrial zones. Um, so regulation started piling up, right? As I think it, it did in, in the development of, of most cities, uh, most large cities in the world. And people, most people don't know about it, uh, as, you, as, you, as I think that is the case in the U.S. as well. Um, so the, the overall um, impression is that all of this is happening um, without, without the hand of our direction of a planner, right? All of this sprawl, all of this, these buildings that, that, are, uh, that have huge setbacks and are um, kind of not producing a, a interesting walkability or, or, or urban environment, uh, the, the overall impression is that this is like haphazard um, uh, in, and, and, and organic in, in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, l- lately, uh, uh, past let's say three or four years, uh, we've seen um, new uh, but very still niche uh, urban planners incorporating uh, uh, this this kind of trend we see uh, worldwide on. Okay, how do we? bring back walkability? How do we um, increase access to public transportation? How do we um, produce uh, many of the qualities that we actually see in our historic downtowns, right? Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to see this, this um, realization of what makes our cities vibrant and, and interesting and accessible and diverse. But at the same time, um, I'm still critical of a few point of views that try to guide this in the sense that, okay, we need, we need a planner to, to put these ideas into practice right now. We need mm-hmm. to design the, the interesting um, characteristics and... and, and and forms that we see in our old old downtowns, um, in a in a kind of organized way, um, and and that's what we're seeing right now with the with the new uh, plan in São Paulo, uh, which is by far the the largest uh, city in Brazil, and and it's it's very interesting to see this plan uh, going forward in a city that size. So I'd say it, it is very different from other plans that are in place right now in Brazil, and it's probably the best right now. So, so it kind of eliminated uh, the, the setbacks, eliminated the, the minimum parking laws that we also have in Brazil. Um, but it's still very normative in, in what the city should be. It has like a final vision 
of what the city should be. And I, I, I don't, I don't go <laughs> with that, with that line of thought. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the sort of awkward developments is now you have people actively trying to plan, uh, these kinds of dynamic walkable neighborhoods, uh, when I, I guess a lot of the early critique uh, of of conventional urban planning was, well, you don't have to plan these sorts of neighborhoods. They emerge. <laughs> um, exactly. You mentioned Brasilia, and that's probably another city a lot of people outside uh, Brazil would know about. Um, it's sort of the, the height of modernist uh, urban planning. Uh, as, as I understand, it's, it's, meant to, it's meant to have a certain form from, from the sky, it's meant to have some sort of form from above, like a bird or something, right? Yeah, it's a plane, actually. Oh, a plane. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, so it's. I mean, this is like this is really the height of of planning. It's 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 building cities around the visions of um, of planners and uh, sort of the grand visionaries. It hasn't remained that way, though, as I understand. As I understand, there's been a lot of informal development or maybe the return of pockets of urban of natural urbanization around Brasilia. Could you talk more about that? So um, Brasilia has uh, what we call the, the Plano Piloto, the p pilot plan, which is basically the, the central area that, that has this urban form uh, that resembles a plane or a bird, uh, and that embodies all of these modernist concepts of, of urban planning. But, um, of course, this central area uh, wasn't, wasn't designed to, to house the number of people that would be necessary for, for the nation's capital. Um, the city uh, needed much more housing. They needed more, more jobs and services for these people. And, uh, of course, the Brazilian government also... Uh, grew a lot since since 1957 and, and expanded its its role uh, in, in, in our society. So um, th this pilot plan um, remained basically intact because they consider it a sort of uh, landmark in, in Brazil or historic landmark. I think it's actually landmarked by UNESCO or something. So um, around Brasilia, we, we, we have developments of what we call satellite cities, or basically suburbs uh, of, or all, of all sorts of types. Uh, we have the, the kind of upper class uh, suburbs that, um, as an urban form, resemble other Brazilian cities, uh, and people voluntarily move there uh, in uh, going after this kind of more dynamic uh, urban environment, <laughs> more real urban environment uh, that, that they don't see in Brasilia. But of course, uh, some of these satellite cities are, are, are very poor, and there are some, some of them are very dangerous areas uh, also. Uh, areas that uh, resemble favelas and, and, and squatters. Um, where people who provide certain services uh, and, and kind of low-skilled jobs who work in the, the Plano Piloto uh, end up moving there because the, this central area is, is too expensive. Um, 
So mm-hmm. it is it is a, a, a kind of artificial dynamic of, of housing production, of commute patterns. I mean, Brasilia doesn't, doesn't, well, it does have a public transportation network, but it's, it's, people can't even use it because you can't even walk on the streets. There, there are no sidewalks in Brasilia. So how can you access a subway station or, or, or a bus stop if you can't even, uh, you know, it, it's not, it, it's a city designed for cars. It's a city designed uh, from the top, right? Uh, so things are very um, spaced out. Uh, it's not uh, built to scale. Uh, and it ends up creating these problems that, that we, we know about that um, modernism philosophy applied to, to urban planning uh, has produced in, in all around the world. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, the sort of worldwide phenomenon of, of heavily planned uh, capital cities. It'd be interesting to, to read more about that. I want to turn to, you mentioned um, the favelas. This is another form of urban development, that uh, Brazilian urban development that a lot of outsiders would be familiar with. You've written about them in the past and, and sort of why they emerge uh, and uh, more about the sort of informal economy that in many cases flourishes in favelas. Um, what should what should someone what should someone who might have this stereotype about favelas, uh, what should they know about these communities? Okay, so some some interesting data. Um, most favelas in Brazil, I'd say, it, it's hard to know precisely, but around eighty percent of them um, are are built in public land. Um, so, so there's there's interesting, uh, I'd say, unfortunate re- legislation in Brazil that that says the following that. If, if you squatter uh, private land for, let's say, five years, and the owner of this land does not claim his property title and say, okay, you're squatting my land, that's, it, it, that's mine, and, and you kind of um, say that and prove that you're the owner, um, if that doesn't happen in a period of five to ten years, the, the squatter is entitled to own that land, okay? Uh, which is, in, in my perspective, an interesting rule because it's actually, um, if the land is unsquattered, it's basically land that nobody wants, nobody even knows it's there, no one wants to buy. Uh, so someone is making use of that uh, in some way. But if the land is public, there, you have no right to to entitle land by by squatting. So basically, the government um, keeps keeps uh, ownership no matter what. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And this this creates this this scenario where eighty um, percent of people are are squatting. Eighty uh, percent of, of squatters are, are are in public land. Um, and it's, it's the, the bureaucratic way the Brazilian government is structured makes it very hard to change this established system 
and entitle these people to their property or, or to formalize their their buildings okay mm-hmm. um so people living in squatters they 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 don't own pro- formal property titles but they usually have inside their community uh, informal property transaction registers uh where they kind of know uh who who is entitled to what inside that informal community Okay, um, but the problem of this system of of this informal system is that they're basically um, isolated from uh, external capital and external formal labor. So if, if I'm in, uh, if I'm a builder, a professional builder, and I say, okay, let's go into a a squatted area, and I don't know, like build better houses or better buildings or better infrastructure. Um, I, I, I'm not allowed to do that because that land doesn't have a formal title. That person is not formally registered in the system and uh, all sorts of, of, of uh, formal limitations to that, to that work. So uh, people living in squatters end up um, building their own houses or uh, Using the local, uh, the local, the well, the locals themselves, the the, the community builds their own houses. Well, I guess and, and I, that an element of that might be lack of access to capital of any kind, right? Exactly, exactly. But even uh, what what I'm trying to say is that even if they had capital, they they aren't even able to let's say specialize or are. Uh, hire outside um, contractors or outside uh, technicians uh-huh. to work formally inside that area because they don't they don't have let's say a receipt of of purchase you know it's 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 outside the system um, so uh, th- that's in my view why uh, squatters kind of have a kind of a ceiling. Uh, a quality ceiling, you know, that that they can't uh, or aren't able to 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 go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in many cases. Uh, so, so there's certainly a lot of concerns with this system, uh, and and I guess you'd see it in 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 a lot of uh, developing countries or rapidly urbanizing countries. Um, I'm guessing uh, at least part of the story would be development restrictions. So why why are people moving into informal settlements so like my question would be why is there not more of a built out uh lower income housing market uh that's formal is there some sort of regulatory constraint on that or um what's going on there so um brazil has um a, a lot of limitations on, on building in central areas and a lack of quality in, in public transportation. So if, if, if a low-income family uh, wants a housing alternative uh, anywhere in the city, it's either, okay, I'm going to squat or to build uh, an informal house inside of a favela that is 
very well located in the city, or I will try to buy a very low quality house uh, two and a half hours from the city center. Mm -hmm. uh, very far from jobs, right? And, and, and well, everything. Um, so, uh, and, and this is kind of, uh, I'd say even Ed Glazer's interpretation of, of favelas and their role uh, in, in Brazilian cities or, or any uh, develop, developing country. Um, that favelas provide uh, the, the, this, this kind of location alternative to low-income families in cities that if, if favelas didn't exist in central areas in Brazil, these people would basically be pushed out to, to the suburbs or to the low-income suburbs and would be worse off that, that, than they are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like we could talk about this <laughs> subject for another hour, but I, I'd really like to turn to um, some of your other work. Maybe maybe we can come back on and we can talk more about um, informal settlements. Uh, you've worked with the tech startup, uh, Bora, uh, and it sort of presents a, an interesting vision for the future of, of transit, urban transit. What is the work going on that, at Bora and... Uh, what is what do you think is the future of, of urban transportation? So um, at Bora, we're uh, developing what we call on-demand transit. So um, think of think of a transit uh, system that has no fixed routes and that has smaller vehicles, not buses, but something like vans. Um, and and the routes of the system are defined by the user requests through their apps and not through a plan or not through a, a study of where people uh, want to go. Um, so we're, we're inspired uh, by a, a system called Kutsuplus that uh, had a pilot operation in, in Helsinki, Finland uh, until uh, last year. And... Uh, we thought it would be a perfect uh, alternative for Brazilian cities as um, uh, we see in most developing countries um, informal transit systems with, with vans kind of emerge from, uh, from bottom up to provide uh, a, a better transportation alternative to what, to what already exists. So, so why are why are smaller vehicles more interesting than larger vehicles? Well, um, transportation engineers uh, are, are usually very keen on on building central lines or BRTs or uh, using even larger buses to create uh, arterial lines and what they call like provider lines or, or um, feed, feeder lines to so, so people can go to, to these central stations, right? And, and this, is, this is kind of the way that, that logistics works for, for packages. Because you're, you have some efficiency gains in, in travel times when you design systems, uh, transportation systems this way. But 
my critique of of this approach to transportation engineering is that people are not packages. So people hate to change their vehicles while they're commuting somewhere, right? The, the, the transfer, the vehicle transfer has a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, uh, and they have delays and there, there's, there's safety issues uh, in, in this, this situation, right? It's mm -hmm. like we're, when you're traveling on, on a plane, right? It's, it's much more uh, comfortable if you have a direct flight instead of something that takes you to many different airports because you, know, you can lose your luggage or something uh, in the middle of the way. Um, so when we think about using smaller vehicles, we're allowed to make more personalized routes, right? We don't, we don't have to rely on a, on a central line that is taking every, everybody from point A to point B. Um, and if, if you introduce a, a technology layer into the system that allows people to have reliability on, on time, on uh, quality of the drivers, on price they'll pay for for the trip, and and all of the uh, let's say uh, known qualities we already see uh, in systems like Uber or Lyft, right? Uh, we basically have a new transportation or, or transit mode that is different from the private automobile or from individual ride sharing, and is also different from public mass transit. It's somewhere in the middle that I see a kind of sweet spot that can, um, that can lead the way to a, to a future of, of urban mobility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something I, something I love about this idea is just that the application of this, this planned chaos idea or this emergent order idea uh, to transportation. Um, just this sort of, even with, even with uh, both with transit and with roads, we have this idea of of you know this this hierarchy yeah. of collector roads and arterials and all of this um but the sort of focus on uh direct routes and and on-demand transit i think could be pretty disruptive uh what do you see the relationship with this kind of system with more conventional transit is is there a future for conventional transit um what do you see the relationship between this this new sort of emergent transit and the sort of older uh maybe more yeah. top-down transit well, I think uh, it's hard to say uh, what will happen. Um, I think um, when we're thinking about the change that's going on right now and uh, even driverless cars that are very close to being um, uh, deployed in, in, in scale, um, we'll definitely see private rides decreasing in cost. Um, We'll see uh, personalized routes and these new uh, mobility systems uh, arising with, with very low costs. And it, it will be hard for public transportation to adapt. Um, I don't think just because of the design of the system, um, because I, th I think there, there can be a, a very important role for, for mass transit um, mostly for uh, low-income uh, city residents that, that maybe 
still don't have a smartphone or, or can't afford or, or don't want to, to pay for uh, high flexibility and personalized systems. Um, but the, the, one of the problems I see even arguing uh, or, or, or having conversations with, with public officials and people from, from uh, public transportation agencies is the, the, the reluctance to adapt to look at the future and say, okay, how will we change? Uh, we, we are seeing the change going on and we know, real, realize we have to do something. Uh, how will we do that? That, that? that kind of mindset is not what we see in, in or, or what we usually see in people that are working in transportation agencies today. Um, there's still... Uh, uh, a lot of thought that okay, uh, Uber is or Uber and Lyft are individual transportation. That's innovation. That's nice, but collective transportation is a different world, and we don't have to worry about that. You know, it, it, it's it's kind of kind of a denial of, of what's going on in, in mobility right now, mm-hmm. and I think I think it's actually dangerous to see that. Mass public transportation can have an important role, but maybe not 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 because of design, but because of of the mindset of people that are working in it. It it, it is it is uh, risking failure. <laughs> uh huh. Well, and and two in terms of the concerns about uh, lower income commuters. Uh, I mean. In, even in even in developing countries, you already have fairly widespread access to to mobile phones. Um, dri- yeah. I mean, we're talking a little bit further in the future, but once you have widespread uh, distribution of driverless cars, labor costs have to be one of the largest you know components of transportation yeah. uh, networks. So, I mean, that could potentially reduce the cost by quite a lot. Yeah, that that can and, and will um, not only not only labor costs, but also um, the the future costs on on gas, right? So uh, I don't I don't know what's the case in the U.S., but gas uh, is fairly expensive in in Brazil, and uh, with with the adoption of electric cars, that that cost will also decrease significantly. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I think uh, on, on that optimistic note, uh, my guest today has been Anthony Ling, uh, the founder and editor of Caos Planejado and uh, the tech startup Bora. Thanks. Thanks for joining the Market Horizon podcast. Thank you, Noah.